0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Brianna Taylor and all that's going on in Louisville, and then be joined by Bobby Jackson from One Collective and Rally Point Ministries. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us again on just a beautiful fall day. It's now autumn, so a beautiful fall Wednesday. Uh, we're glad to have you joining us. Remember, you can find our old shows at 1160hope.com, get our podcast, wherever it is, you get your podcasts. And also everything we talk about is at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Well, Ian, uh, I had a different way that I wanted to start the show. And then when I was driving back to my house to, uh, to do the show, I, obviously I record from my house, you record from yours uh, in this whole area, area of covid uh, as I was driving, I had the radio on. Came to learn that uh, that the um, the prosecutor or the district attorney of Louisville uh, had announced their decision, the grand jury decision in the Brianna Taylor case. Uh, that basically none of the three cops involved in the death of Brianna Taylor are going to be charged with anything in relation to her death. One of them is going to be charged with some other uh, charges, but nothing as it relates to the death of Brianna Taylor. And uh, I thought, you know what, we've got to start the show with this. I don't know much information. I've kind of followed the story as best I can. Uh, I'm watching right now behind me on CNN, lots of uh, people gathering police and protesters in Louisville, Kentucky right now. Uh, so it remains to be seen what's going to happen here over the next 24 hours and so or so. But uh, just wondering, as you saw the news, I'm sure, whether it be over Twitter or however it was that you learned it, uh, what were your thoughts when when you heard about the, uh, the this decision in the Breonna Taylor case?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be sparse in my words now in okay. the hopes that we talk about this later in the week. Um, yeah. But I saw Esau McCauley, who we've had on the show a couple of times, uh, really brilliant. Anglican pastor. He, he tweeted a couple hours ago. He said this hurt. She deserved a better America. All those black lives lost it as well. We all still do um and that's from the perspective of like a, a black christian brother who i i imagine feels some level of responsibility to say something you know that is the weird mm-hmm. age that we're in uh where he's grieving to a a different degree right that's that's, right. that's just obvious maybe it's not obvious but Brian and I you know we want to always be mindful that as like two white male pastors. Like we we come at this from a, a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I read his tweet and other tweets like it. And there's like, there's leadership behind that, but there's also just grief, you know, and it's, yeah. it is very strange. I don't know if you've hopped on Twitter or not, if you've uh, maybe avoided it intentionally. <laughs> um, I, I
0: just did hop on as we we're kind of starting the show for sure. But
1: yeah, man, I, I, I'm worried for, louisville tonight to be honest um that concerns me i don't know i I feel like i'm not even really making much sense right now like i on one hand if i if i could just be really raw like i i do feel some pressure to like navigate this responsibly you know and Mm -hmm. on the other hand it like it just it just grieves me and i'm sure somebody listening is like it shouldn't grieve you because of x y and z and this you know the judicial system did what it was supposed to do and I, again, feel completely unqualified to like weigh in with any level of like, like real intellect on the matter. Other than it just based on what I do know that, yeah, this, this feels like, um, like when I look at the pain of the, of the people that are are posted and tweeting friends of mine, you know, right now, uh, that that feels very visceral, very, very intense. So I don't know how, how do you, how do you answer all this?
0: A lot of those same ways. I thought you put that really well because, uh, hopping on Twitter, I, I, it was one of those when you have a radio show, you're like, I guess we have to say something. I don't know what to say. Yeah. Um, I saw Derwin Gray, who we've had on the show before, pastor uh, out of Charlotte, I believe, uh, or down that way, at least. Uh, just all he tweeted was, wow, here we go again. That's all he tweeted. I was like, oh, that hard, that's hard. Jeez. And uh, it, yeah, you, you do want to listen, but then you, you feel like you need to say something. I was having lunch with somebody today, uh, a friend of mine from church. And we were talking about, yeah, I think this is coming down today. It was before we learned anything. Uh, it's the pastor who's supposed to do this, but it was this guy who did it. He just goes, let's just stop and pray. Let's just mm. stop and pray. And he prayed for the city. Like, that's what I prayed for the city. He prayed for her family and this and that. And I was like, oh, you know, in the in that moment, you're like, oh, I'm the pastor. I should have done that. But then I was just really thankful that he just said, you know, uh, Let's not even talk about it. Let's just pray and take some time. I, I think what you said is good. Like, let's talk about it later in the week for sure. But I think this idea, of, uh, it needs to uh, it needs to burden and sadden us rather than like, well, here's why. Here's this. Okay.
1: Yeah, right. Uh,
0: and also drive us as the church, as Christ followers, uh, to prayer. Because this does affect us all. But again, like you said, it affects uh, our African American brothers and sisters more. It affects people who live in the Louisville area more, and uh, and so for those of us who are a little removed from it, it does cause us to at the very least need to pray and listen uh, and continue to try to be uh, Jesus in the people's lot li- in people's lives. And uh, but other than that, I'm with you, man. It's kind of like ah, it's it's wild to keep turning it on and keeps kind of seeing the same. I know it's kind of same story, different characters. It
1: doesn't, it doesn't feel like justice to be honest. Like if I had to just put words to it, you know, it it doesn't personally.
0: It's well put and uh, we'll work to have somebody on later in the week that maybe can speak to it more uh, eloquently than we can. Uh, And so at the very least uh, spend time, take some time to pray today. Take some time to pray and we'll continue talking. We'll. I'm sure, as you said, we'll talk about this at some point later in the week is, as we have our mind around it. Well, with the last uh, couple of minutes, I I did want to start this show uh, today in a different direction. Uh, And that's this, out of uh, Washington, D.C., a very well-known pastor in Washington, D.C., at a well-known church called Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Mark Dever. Uh, They just, uh, they're known as a large, prominent evangelical church right there on Capitol Hill. Uh, They have filed a challenge in the district uh, alleging the city government is violating the First Amendment by facilitating and tolerating Massive protests, but forbidding worship services indoor outside above 100. And, and I guess all I wanted to ask you, I wanted to have a longer conversation, but we don't have much time for this today, uh, right now. I just wanted to ask you, uh, do you think we're going to see this more and more? Do you think as cities and states are doing different things with churches and you've got MacArthur, but you've got Andy Stanley, you've got churches doing different mm-hmm. things, even in our area, you know, your church versus some other big churches? Uh, I it was interesting to read that Devers Church does not have an online presence this whole time. They haven't been doing an online church right. for for reasons that he wants to. I'm just wondering what you thought when you read this article. And is do you think that this is kind of the future? We're gonna keep having these stories over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't go as far to say it's the future, but I, I do think we're gonna see more of this. I don't I don't know that it will always be newsworthy. Like it does feel like right now is a particular cultural moment where the very fact that you and I are, are privy to it all the way in you know DC like that's that I think will mm, become less interesting I guess because it'll be happening yeah. I but I do yeah I do think we're going to see more and more of it to be honest probably in, a, in much less dramatic like headline making kinds of ways but that has all sorts of other implications doesn't it if if, if this becomes more normative than not uh, that will create not only a certain kind of trend, but also a, a kind of expectation. And that will be interesting at, at the very least.
0: <laughs> That's a great word. I was, I just referenced his lunch and I told him, he was asking me, how am I doing in the church? And I said, it's just weird, man. It's just yeah. weird right now. And this adds to it. And fascinating that Capitol Hill Baptist Church has chosen not to be online at all for the last six months. So yeah. Uh, that's not something you know. Anyway, we were going to have a longer discussion, but the, the Brianna story, uh, Taylor story is definitely the story of the day. So, uh, it was important for us to, to bump this and talk a little bit about that. Well, coming up next, uh, Bobby Jackson from one collective Elgin and also a ministry called Rally Point is going to join us next for the next two segments. Hope you stay around with us as we talk to Bobby Jackson next here on the common good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Really uh, thankful that you're here with us. One of the things we love about doing this show is to be able to meet new people and highlight organizations doing good things in the Chicagoland community. Uh, and with that in mind, we are thrilled to be joined right now by Bobby Jackson, who's with an organization called One Collective. So, Bobby, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, why don't you uh, just introduce yourself, however you see fit, to our audience? <laughs> sure. Uh, I was a youth pastor in the Chicagoland area for um, a paid youth pastor for about eight years and volunteer for about eight years. Um, and then in the last uh, the last two years, I, I left uh, the the staff of our church to help launch um, the Elgin Community of One Collective. Um, mm. One Collective is a is an international organization that that um, plants communities around the world with the goal of bringing people together to make sure no one is invisible and all people have access to food, freedom and forgiveness.
1: Yeah, Bobby, I, I love that mission. And, and when you mentioned the things that you guys are passionate about, I think, yeah, that's those are things that all of us want to do. I, I think Can you tell us a little more about about how you actually like live those things out.
2: Yeah. yeah, we all want to do those things, right? Yeah, so <laughs> uh, so what we did concretely, like I, when I was at church, when I was on staff at my church, one of the things that was really obvious it was a it was a, a, a mega church, and it was um, there was a lot of caring people who wanted to help, uh, especially locally. Like we do a really good job with our international work, I think, but we were struggling to really connect with people back home. And people in our own neighborhoods that were hurting. And uh, and so we kind of went on a journey to figure out um, – by we, I mean my wife and I uh, and our family – to figure out how to connect in our own backyard with people from different cultures and backgrounds and classes and, um, and different kinds of experiences. And so what we did, concretely, we went to Mexico and actually partnered with one of our organizations there so we could learn Spanish. And then we came back about a year, a little over a year ago. And for the last year, we've been studying the city we've lived in. Um, f- we've lived here for about eight years, but in the last year, we've done a thousand conversations um, trying to ask people. Uh, we always ask two questions. We say like, what do you think the biggest issues are here? Uh, name three to five and which would you solve first? Mm. And then we ask what resources or skills do you bring to the table that you're willing to contribute to solving the issues that you've That you see. And then what I've done is I've kept a, uh, a spreadsheet of all of that. And um, I have a master's in social work. And and so I love the data and the nitty gritty of that. And we've coded all of that data. And now we can say fairly conclusively after a thousand conversations, these are the four biggest issues in town. And these are the people who have resources to connect with them. And then right now we're in a stage of connecting people um, to nonprofits that need volunteers or funding or training, um, with churches, with government, with schools. Um, and we get to kind of play the general contractor role. We, we look at it from the big picture and, uh, and we, we point, uh, people in different directions. Uh, Bob, you said something fascinating there. You
0: talked about uh, studying I think your town or your city you said and asking yeah. questions and conversations. This is something you always hear of overseas missionaries doing, right? They go yep. over and they just talk to people, but it's probably not something that churches do with their local town or mm. individuals do. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about what it looked like to study and why that's so important?
2: Sure. Yeah. I, we lived uh, in, we live in Elgin. We lived in Elgin for um, the seven years before this, this journey minus the six months in Mexico Um And so we kind of knew our neighbors, we knew the circles, we naturally, um, we naturally like run in the preschool, the school district, the, um, the gym, like the places that we would frequent, but we didn't know, like our town is divided by a river. We didn't know the other side of the river. We didn't know the Latino population in our town. We didn't know, um, like the South side, there was like pockets and neighbors and business owners and, and groups that we just, we we live right next to, but we didn't know. So we intentionally went around and and asked them those same questions. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. And I know that like
1: my guess is that COVID has changed a lot of that. I'd love to know a little bit more about how has COVID shifted some of maybe your focus and mission
2: with this kind of work specifically. That's a great question. Yeah. It, it really transformed what we were attempting to do. Like this year was dedicated to learning. Um, but it actually thrust us into a place where the connections we had made, uh, were really critical. And so I I got invited into what is now the Elgin human services council and became actually became the chair of the group. And, (laughs) and, um, and it was because I knew who, like, I knew what churches had volunteers that were willing to help. And like a lot of the organizations lost all of their volunteers. So our, our food network lost almost all of their volunteers because they had depended heavily on retirees and at the beginning, every retiree just kind of dropped off, um, like it felt like they dropped off the face of the planet and, and you know, to protect their health. And so uh, we had just connected with churches who were saying, hey, we can't do services, but we have a bunch of willing volunteers. So if you can, if you can set us up. So I ended up in a role where I could put volunteers from local churches into these. I, I knew what organizations needed them most urgently. And we got to connect um, hundreds of volunteers into into different organizations, especially the Food Network. That one, They were the first ones to get hit because people, lots more people needed food. Um, and at the same time, they lost all of their uh, mobilization force. So that in the U.S., we have plenty of food in the chains, but we didn't have enough volunteers to actually get the food to people who needed it.
0: I'm curious, uh, could you speak to maybe it's a church leader out there or it's just a Christian who's listening right now going, man, this sounds really good. I just don't have the emotional energy or time to kind of reach out and help people in my community do what he's talking about. Could you maybe provide some uh, theology, some inspiration for people who might be thinking that way?
2: Yeah, for me, the the theology is built off of watching Jesus Uh, like that sounds really I don't know sounds something, but um like when Jesus did ministry he he went around preaching, teaching, and healing. He cared about bodies, minds, and hearts uh you know he 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 claimed his own mission statement was to come and 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 set people free um, to proclaim healing to the blind and to, and to proclaim the gospel right to proclaim the good news right. and so he's always partnered uh the gospel of words with actions. And I think it's a false dichotomy to think the gospel can be either or like I think a lot of people swing to like oh we just must preach or we must just serve and and I think both of those are not helpful and it and it cheapens one or the other. Um so I think it's I think it's a man, like a mandate. Like I think we have to be doing both and um there's there's good methods for doing that but um that make it a little easier and and in the technology world there's lots and lots of ways to connect and learn and study um, and help.
0: That's awesome. Well, Bobby Jackson, we're excited that he is joining us from an organization called One Collective in Elgin. Uh, And Bobby's nice enough, he's gonna join us for a second segment. We're gonna talk a little bit more about this, but also something else he's been doing as if there's not enough going on with One Collective. Bobby's got some (laughs) other things, some other irons (laughs) in the fire that we're excited to talk to him about next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm, and we continue to be joined as we were last segment by Bobby Jackson. Now, last segment, we talked about the organization he's a part of called One Collective in Elgin. and uh, But Bobby's got a background also as a youth pastor, as do a former youth pastor, as do... Ian and I, mm-hmm. and uh, has started an organization, or as part of an organization, called Rally Point. That I find fascinating as we've talked about this. So, Bobby, could you just give us some background of what Rally Point is?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Rally Point is a ministry uh, that is is uh, trying to help youth pastors. We set out to help youth pastors feel equipped to care for hurting kids in their ministry. Um, as we, as I was a youth pastor. Um, what we, what I noticed was there were a lot of kids in my own ministry who felt alienated by a lot of things. They felt like they were sidelined and I was really scared to help them. I didn't feel equipped Um, kids who were self-harming or kids who were from different backgrounds or kids who were having gender identity issues or whatever the thing was, I felt really intimidated by those spaces. And so I found myself like kind of avoiding it. And then later on realizing that those are the exact kids God was calling me to care most about, Mm -hmm. And so we started a program at first that was just, we just meet and help kids working through addiction and grief and pain. Um, and then I was super overwhelmed trying to do that. And I went back and got schooling. So I got a master's in counseling and, um, and now we're working to help youth pastors feel trustworthy and prepared in that space so that hmm. they feel like they can engage with kids who are hurting.
1: Yeah, Brian and I were both saying offline, like that sounds like the kind of ministry I could have used right out of undergrad because (laughs) I literally remember trying to connect, desperately trying to connect even with other youth pastors in the area, thinking I'm brand new in town. I I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. Does anyone have any time just to get coffee, to resource share? I remember specifically emailing like 10 or 15 local churches and only one of them even got back to me. And that guy Hmm. thankfully became like a lifelong friend. Like he was a lifesaver but i'd love to know more about like why do you think this is so significant because a lot of youth pastors have some kind of training and they have you know a school or professors that can kind of go back to and ask questions why is what what you guys do so needed and and so specific to, to student ministry
2: yeah i think w- we tend to to be prone to like the the production elements in our churches like the right. the weekly the weekly rhythms and the the uh, Preaching and 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 those kinds of things get so much of our focus that I think a lot of kids end up um, left out and kind of sidelined. There's also I just think a lot of intimidation. Like, what do I say? If I say the wrong thing, am I going to hurt the kid, or is the kid going to hurt themselves? Uh, do I need to call uh, you know child protective services or right. um, or the parent? Like, who's the right person to call? We just it's not stuff that's covered, or if it is covered in school, uh, it's not the stuff we remember. Um, and so we've kind of just come alongside and said, hey, this is the one thing we want to help with is how to connect with those kids, how to help parents mm-hmm. connect when their kids are hurting. Um, so helping youth pastors into that particular space. And I think it's so important, especially with COVID and everything right now, um, we're just seeing spikes in anxiety and suicide rates and domestic violence. And so it's, it's I, I don't think there's ever been a time that's more important than right now to know mm-hmm. how to do that well and to yeah. feel like you can handle that, those situations.
0: Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because uh, that's what I was thinking as you were talking, like there's unique stressors on our high school and our yeah. junior high school and said, even yeah. when I was in high school, even when I was a youth pastor, yeah. weren't present. Can you speak to that a little bit more?
2: Yeah. Well, there's a few big things. So COVID is one of them. Uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who's like one of the experts on trauma, kind of just stated that this is a precondition for trauma. So nobody like we, we don't want to throw the word you're being traumatized by COVID out, but you're set up to feel traumatizing like you, you there are anything could set us over the edge because we're all extra anxious all of our bodies are actually releasing like the stress hormones and so we want to fight or flight but like the government says we can't flight so we all just you know stay in our houses and we feel yeah. pinned and it's it's a recipe for fight um which then kind of leads to the freeze or or fawn which are the new ones um in in, in that space and and really what that means is we end up being actually traumatized because there are fights and there are these, these other kinds of things. So we want to help people learn like the basic skills of how to release that energy in a healthy way. And as mm-hmm. youth pastors we're uniquely positioned to help young people's uh, young people and their families um, do that well. And, and, and end up not like walking like out of COVID with a whole bunch mm-hmm. of damage and, and trauma, but, but instead to, to walk out like, saying that wasn't, that wasn't so bad or like we got through it together or, you know, in the end, um, looking back with, with not, um, not trauma and dread and hate and stuff like that.
1: See, there's a number of things about, I think it was my first month or two of student ministry. There was probably four or five pretty traumatic things to happen, like either in or Mm -hmm. adjacent to our student ministry that for a young guy like me that like snapped me out of like, okay, I have got to learn how to navigate these things. It was like in my face. It was right there. It was just really, really clear that like I needed more equipping, more help coaching, like what you're talking about. Yeah. I'd love for you to speak to the youth pastor, maybe the student pastor or associate, whatever guy who's like, well, nothing too traumatic is happening in our community. I don't think I need what this guy's offering. Mm -hmm. Everything's sort Mm -hmm. of, at least by their metrics, their measurements Mm -hmm. or their Mm -hmm. assessment, even they're like, I think, I think we're fine. I don't think I Mm -hmm. need any additional, that seems like that might be part of the Achilles heel. Sometimes it's student ministry is they don't even really know that they need the help that they so desperately need.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that happens to all of us. We all end up, especially because we, we, we gravitate towards the kids we like as, as youth pastors and uh, whether we mean to or not. And some of us have like this keen heart, Oh, like that kid sitting alone, I'll go talk with them. But there are still kids who uh, who annoy us, who, who rub us the wrong way, who come from a different background that we don't relate to or whatever it is, or, or just don't have like the social skills we wish they'd have. And those kids are hard for us to connect with. So then we end up hanging out with the kids we like. Those other kids drift away. And then our youth ministry does look really good because we're hanging out with kids that feel nice to hang out with. And um, there are kids everywhere in our communities that need us. And if they're not in our youth ministry, we need to go find them. And if they probably are in our youth ministry anyway, because um, kids tend to hide their their hurt and feelings and hmm. uh, and things. But but if they're if they're genuinely not like I have some kids in my youth ministry who are super healthy, and and that's a great thing and to be celebrated. Um, but there are kids all around in every school who are hurting deeply, and again, I think that's who Jesus would have gone out and found. They wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been content with the kids who are happy, healthy with great parents and yeah. uh, and great spiritual lives, he would have gone out and found the kids who are hurting the, the most and, and shared hope with them. That's
0: yeah. good, man. By the last minute we have, I'm curious, I have a high schooler and a junior higher in my house. <laughs> uh, so I've gone from youth <laughs> pastor to the, the parent.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And
0: I'm curious, and I know this isn't necessarily who you deal with, but what would you say to the parent of a high schooler or a junior higher who's like, I don't really know how to connect or what my kid's going through. But it's maybe, a piece of advice that you would give to them as they parent through these
2: years. Yeah. The, I do a lot of that, especially in my therapy settings. Uh, mm-hmm. so the, the biggest things are, are to, uh, to let the kid be the expert on themselves. Um, mm-hmm. we've known them their whole lives. So we know the outside, every action that they've ever taken, but we don't in fact know their drives and at that age they're creating their identity. So the person speaking is the person learning, the person who's shaping and forming. So as a parent the the key to to parenting an adolescent uh is to get them talking. So whatever it takes, get them talking. Um and and teach less and learn more about mm. them and ask mm. them lots and lots of questions and figure out any way you can to get them talking. That would be the number one thing I'd say. Yeah. That's really
0: helpful. Uh, Bobby Jackson, we are thrilled that you've joined us. A uh, couple different places. If in the first the first segment, we talked a lot about One Collective Elgin. Mm-hmm. You can go to their website, onecollective.org. Uh, you can also find them on Facebook at One Collective Elgin. See all the good stuff they're doing, ways that you can connect. And then what we just talked about here about youth ministry and high school kids, you can go to rallypointmin.com. That's rallypointmin, m i n Dot com. Bobby, we're really thankful. you, you uh, We covered a lot with you today. So we're really thankful for the time <laughs> yeah. you took. We really do yeah, appreciate you. it. Thanks for coming on. Yeah.
2: Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Ab-
0: absolutely. Well, you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us. Well, over at Relevant Magazine, This article from Katie Bergman: Seven ways everyday people can help end human trafficking. So it's going to try to say, "Hey, this issue out there of human trafficking. Here's some things that you can be doing." Because sometimes we can think to ourselves, uh, "What can I be doing?" Uh, But Ian, I'm interested in the in the beginning of this article. It says human trafficking is deeply complex. If someone uh, not to put you on the spot, but how would you even dis- define or describe human trafficking? Because I've had people ask me that, like, what do you even mean when you guys talk about that? Uh, how would you help people understand not just what human trafficking is, but the, the immense problem that it is?
1: Oh, I mean, it's it is not only a big problem, but it, it's more nuanced than people realize. Like, I think when people yeah. think of trafficking, they think exclusively of sex trafficking, which, which is obviously uh, a a massive part of it, but it, I mean, it involves, it could involve force, but it, it also involve like fraud or coercion <laughs> to, um, obtain like some kind of, well maybe I want to like, like sex, but also labor. Um, and the, the fact that, like, I don't think people realize like how often this is even happening, like in DuPage County where I'm at. That's like, a, often, yeah. often the notion, the sen- the feeling is, yeah, that's an awful thing, but it's either happening way over there in some other country, or they, you know, they assume it's like, oh, that's probably only like in Skid Row or something. You know, like, mm-hmm. no, in fact, uh, the numbers in like the suburbs of Chicago. Are are pretty staggering. So it's it's not only something that's much more broad than just sex trafficking, but it is also something that's much closer to home than what I think a lot of us realize.
0: Yeah, what was that story we did about a month ago? I feel like it was outside of Detroit, right, where all of these kids got saved. And like I remember just being blown away by it. I don't remember the details of the story, but we it was in the hundreds of kids that got rescued. And uh, this is certainly uh, it's becoming a little bit more. Uh, on the front burner for people, but oftentimes people like you and me and others will go, well, what can I do about it? How can I be part of a solution that helps at all? And so that's what this article is going. It's going, all right, uh, everyday people who maybe don't have time. She says here to quit their jobs and join an organization. Here's some some ways that you can that you can still help. So here's seven ways everyday people can help end human trafficking. Uh, Let me take the first one. Here we go. She says, "Just what we just talked about: educate yourself, find out about the 25 types of modern slavery. There you go, all those numbers of types identified in the United States. Read the Global Slavery Index and stay informed about the latest campaigns from Freedom United. Learn how to identify and report suspicious activities in your area. And all of those links, if you go to our article, this article at our Facebook page, you're going to see. You're going to be able to just." Uh, Click on those and you'll be able to see those things they talked about. But educate yourself.
1: Yeah, the second one here is ask for help. Uh, Directly buying sexual services from a person in prostitution isn't the only way to fuel human trafficking. Sadly, there is a strong interconnectedness between pornography and sexual exploitation. How pornography is frequently made of people while they're in prostitution. How traffickers use popular trends in porn to inform the activities they force victims to engage in. How exposure to porn can normalize violence and make us less compassionate towards victims of sexual exploitation. If you or anyone, you know, is struggling with an addiction to pornography, it's okay to ask for help and then offers another again, this whole article, by the way, I don't need to keep saying it, but just brought with links to other resources that I, I, I really do highly recommend you check out.
0: Yeah, this next one's interesting. Make informed purchasing decisions as comfortable as it is to grasp onto the cultural scripts that tell us we're not part of the problem unless we directly contribute to it. Our consumption habits would say otherwise. The unfortunate truth is that the coffee we drink and the food we eat, the clothes we wear, and the electronics we use may be tainted by slave labor. Buying fair trade products and supporting ethical companies is one of the best ways you can fight human trafficking in your daily life. Some companies, uh, like Kamano Island Coffee, not only empower their workers, but they also donate a percentage of their profits to anti-trafficking work. Use resources and apps such as The Good Trade, B-i-c-o-t better world shopper or good on you to guide you in shopping more ethically. And that's where it takes some work, right, man? Like it's yeah. just easier just to be like, I'm just going to find the cheapest thing and I'm going to buy it. But sometimes what we buy uh, makes a difference in this conversation.
1: Uh, I'll be honest. It doesn't take that much more work. There's some, right? there's yeah, there's so many more resources now than even five, seven years ago, apps and websites where they literally organize these things for you. There's a, a website. I remember years ago, someone showed me it's called, uh, slavery footprint. I think you can go to slaveryfootprint.org, and right of the homepage it just says how many slaves work for you, and you like punch in some information about yourself. I take ten minutes and do it because you—it's staggering uh, how much our purchases make a, a difference in this regard. Which leads me to the next one here: buy products that support survivors. You can contribute to the restoration process by buying survivor-made products, home goods, and fashion items from to the market, jewelry from Nightlight. And body care products from Thistle Farms are just a few examples of social enterprises that employ survivors, giving them a viable and sustainable income stream. So it's not just about hey uh, buying products ethically in general, which is a great start. That's a really, really important step. But to even more proactively buy things, maybe things that you'd already be buying anyway, uh, from organizations that are supporting survivors, I think that's also massively helpful.
0: Yeah, and the next one is kind of even to the next level, demand corporate accountability. Uh, Companies like Nestle, Hershey's, Walmart, and H&M are notorious for unethical practices, including the use of slave labor. But with the amount of published research and the availability of software programs and comprehensive audits, companies are running out of excuses for relying on slave labor. Refusing to buy from companies like these is a good start, but consider taking your advocacy even further. Lobby global brands to be more transparent, eliminate exploitation from their supply chains, and improve working conditions. Call on corporations to stop spreading and normalizing sexual exploitation. Ask local businesses to use or sell fair trade products. Write to your political representative to put corporate social yes. responsibility on their yes. agenda. Yes,
1: we got a couple more. Of this one give or fundraise traffickers can make six figure salaries off exploiting human beings, which just let that sink in. Meanwhile, many nonprofits struggle to pay their staff a livable wage as they work tirelessly to combat human trafficking like that alone should be sobering for all of us. The traffickers in a lot of cases are making tons of money. And how many people do you know who work for nonprofits who are like, I, mean, I got to go get a side hustle just to just to be able to survive the instability or lack of consistent funding is often one of the greatest challenges of nonprofits, which is heartbreaking, especially considering Americans spend more on their pets Than they give to human services charities financially supporting high quality anti-trafficking organizations may not feel exciting, but it is one of the most impactful ways you can help donating undesignated funds, especially on a regular basis, gives a nonprofit the autonomy to decide how to best support survivors or prevent human trafficking, whether that may be hiring a local trauma counselor or starting a skills training program. So important.
0: Last one is invest in people. Ultimately, intervening in human trafficking is about more than operating programs and building shelters. It's about building up people, especially those living in vulnerable situations. When we help members of our community to have a strong sense of worth, healthy relationships, and access to education, employment, and stable housing, we're helping to fight human trafficking. What that might look like is simply being a good neighbor. Maybe it's being a mentor to a teen girl or creating a safe space for the boy down the street. Maybe it's welcoming the new immigrant family. Maybe it's forming relationships with people living at the Hmm. local homeless shelter or becoming a foster parent. And she ends this way. We can all participate in creating healthy, resilient and compassionate communities as the foundation for ending human trafficking. How will you contribute? That's good stuff. Uh, so, we put this article up on our Facebook page from Relevant Magazine. I'd encourage you to go check it out because just about every organization and statistic we mention in there is linked, uh, and you could go and read about them mm-hmm. more fully. Hopefully, we can all do our part uh, to help end human trafficking. Well, we're glad that you've been joining us today here on The Common Good. AIM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> of this hour, we're going to talk about abortion, patriotic education, and then eight signs your Christianity is too comfortable. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Uh, I used to call this hump day, Ian, but no, no longer, no longer. That was taken away from me by who did that? Keith took it away from me last week.
1: That's the uh, saddest you've ever sounded. What did it Keith is. say? By the way, I already I already forgot this story. He just he tore in on Twitter
0: to anybody who had called Humpty and we knew he was talking to me.
1: Oh, that's <laughs> right. It wasn't it wasn't about you directly. It was was we that one it. of his uh, one of his launch to the surface of the sun remarks? I think so. Yeah. Something
0: like that. And I was like, OK, OK, fine, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll lose
1: it. But anyway,
2: Hump we, 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 we
0: <laughs> thank you. Uh, I got you, buddy.
1: I'm I'm on, I'm on your side.
0: You're you're on my team. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> anyway, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show online eleven sixty hope dot com, and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Ian, I am curious is is today a special day uh, besides Hump Day? Any any weird holidays? Any weird observances today?
1: I'm uh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, it's <laughs> Are you ready? This first one's so so strange. Uh, Oh, really? Yeah. National Checkers slash Dogs in Politics Day. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) What? Is there like a joke I'm missing? Is there like a subtext that doesn't. National Checkers checkers slash Dogs in Politics Day? I'm gonna
0: sh- I'm going to show my naiveness here, or I'm gonna impress people here. I believe Checkers was Richard Nixon's dog. Am I correct on that? We're gonna look that up. On
1: the Google oh machine. man, you
0: might be. Right. I might have gotten that just right. I think I might have gotten that right. Oh, I, let's just
1: go with you are right. Let's not research it. Let's just on the air into the internet. Uh, the other ones are not quite as fun, but also weird. National Great American Pot Pie Day. I like pot pie. I, I like pot pie. I've never heard great American as Good a morning. prefix. That's weird. Um, National Snack Stick Day. What is a snack stick? Like uh, beef jerky? I don't know. <laughs> Try to go into Slim any trim. gas. Go into a gas Slim station trim. anywhere and ask the cashier, oh, I'd like one snack stick, please. And just record <laughs> the reaction he gives you. See I, what they say. <laughs> I guarantee it's confusion. Uh, it's National Teal Talk Day. No oh, idea. I don't know. we are supposed to talk about teal. And then uh, Nas- uh, Ener- Energize Day, not Energize, Energize, I N N E R G I Z E Day. Mm-hmm. So there you have it. That's time that you can't get back. So sorry.
0: Well, we were going to talk about something interesting, but now that we know it's National Talk Teal Day, well, let's mm-hmm. talk about Teal. <laughs> oh, I have so many opinions. <laughs> Here's what I do want to talk about uh, somebody we've had on the show before, Sky Jatani, who is brilliant. If you don't follow him on Twitter, He's written a couple different books, all of which uh, I would suggest reading. You're a regular listener to his uh, him and Phil Vischer's Holy Post podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is also wonderful. So, uh, Sky Jitani, who's been on before, and he is uh, he will stir the pot in a good way. When I say that, he will he will tweet things, say things that really make you think. And we talked to him about that when he was on probably two months ago or so. Uh, and Sky dove into the deep end. Uh, of politics and abortion with a Twitter uh, tweet thread. So I'm going to read it. It's 12 tweets long. Uh, I'm going to read it and then uh, I'm going to let you jump in with them and then uh, you can give your reply. Here we
1: Great, go. great. I can't wait.
0: Sky says this, this is, again is that uh, Sky Jatani's uh, Twitter handle. He said, your vote in capital letters, your vote for president will neither save nor sacrifice the lives of unborn babies. That's the beginning. And then underneath it, he goes, now that I have your attention, let's look at the facts. For 50 years, Christians have been told that the Supreme Court is the key to ending abortion and that overturning Roe versus Wade Wade is a holy cause. It goes like this. My vote uh, for the president, which leads to justices, which leads to the Supreme Court, which leads to overturn Roe, which leads to save babies. This argument has been used by both parties to motivate their voters uh, in every election since 1980. And for many Christians, the single issue trumps all others. Many forget that Roe v. Wade did not legalize abortion. Before Roe, scholars say 20 to 25% of all pregnancies were aborted. Today, it's 18%. Before 1821, abortion was legal everywhere in the U.S., and in 1972, it was legal in just 20 states. Reversing Roe would simply revert the country back to the 1972 system of a state-by-state patchwork of laws. It's not the silver bullet solution many Christians think it is. But here's the crazy part. The abortion rate today is lower than before Roe was decided. According to the uh, Guttmacher Institute, in 1973, the rate was 16.3 per thousand women. In 2017, it is 13.4. So returning to pre-Roe America would mean increasing the abortion rate. Hmm. Uh, And scholars say overturning Roe, Sky continues to say, would likely have no impact on the number of abortions in the U.S. So why does this one case get so much attention? Because it's an easy way for both parties to frighten both pro-choice and pro-life voters into the voting booth. Since Hmm. 73... Republican presidents have appointed 11 justices. Democratic presidents have appointed only four. In that time, the Supreme Court has only upheld abortion and not restricted it. And only one justice, that being Justice Thomas, has gone on the record opposing Roe. In other words, the Supreme Court has been largely irrelevant on this issue for 50 years. And there's no evidence uh, that it will change no matter how many GOP presidents are elected and no matter how many justices they appoint. In election season, abortion is about power, not policy. Also, abortions have declined under every administration, both Republican and Democrat, for the last 40 years. And it actually fell the most under the Obama administration, although not because of him. There's no data saying a Democrat in the White House kills more babies or Republican saves more. So why have abortions declined for 40 years? There are many factors, including health care access, poverty assistance, contraception and local state laws. I recommend David French's editorial that we mm-hmm. talked about a couple of days ago. Do not. I do not agree with the de- Democratic platform on abortion. I remain pro-life, Sky says. That's why I believe we ought to be strategic about supporting policies and programs that actually help women and reduce abortions and not be manipulated by politicians. We must decide what's more important, overturning a largely irrelevant law to make us feel better or actually enacting local policies that help women support families and save unborn children. The facts don't support the wide and powerful view that the presidency is the key to ending abortion. And if you think which lever you pull in the voting booth every four years is what makes you truly pro-life, think again. That was a mic drop there by Sky Jatani. Wondering what you think about that.
1: Uh, I mean, (laughs) it's it's a little difficult to argue with, to be honest. Part of what I appreciate about Sky, it's actually akin to, I think, how I feel about David French, is by most metrics, he's conservative. uh, That's right. Politically. Fiscally, theologically. Yep. Um, I imagine he probably got some hate mail for this. I would imagine so. I'd love to have him on to read some of it. I think that would be great. Um, we've done both the David French article and then before that, the Ron Sider article. Yep. I yep. uh, caught a little bit of heat for that. It seems like most of the heat that at least you and I have caught in tackling those topics from those sources is, I don't buy it. Yeah. Um, uh, gosh, I'm not quite sure even where to go from here. I, I I realize like, posting a graph isn't necessarily always the mic drop we think it is in the world right. of Twitter and Facebook. We're like, ooh, he's got a graph. There's no comeback for that. <laughs> I re- like, yeah. I know that's, I know, I know, I know that's not fully the case. Um, But he says better a lot of what i've felt for a while but didn't really necessarily have the intellectual chops to articulate to be totally honest what's tricky and maybe that's part of you know like he doesn't um i don't think he doesn't pastor a local local congregation so i think it's often what what keeps pastors from actually speaking to some of these things is they're like nervous that the nuance won't be appreciated and so right. they'll just be demonized or they'll be labeled this or that and i think his his willingness to unpack it at the very least is super super helpful and i'd love to know what people think
0: yeah i think you put that really well because my takeaway from sky stuff here is like man that makes you think and also as we've tried to say the abortion conversation which you and i've been very clear what we think about abortion uh, the abortion conversation is a lot more nuanced when when the when the actual question is what's the solutions what are the solutions? That conversation becomes a lot more nuanced than just uh, elect this president to get the Supreme Court to overturn that one thing. Yeah, and right. uh, I think we need to own that as a church. As Sky said, Is if our actual de- uh, desire is to affect change, then we need to have this nuanced discussion. Be, and that's what we want to see happen. So we're going to put that up at our Facebook page. Sky, if you're out there listening, we'd love to have you on sometime to talk about this. And, uh, yeah, we would love to have that conversation. Well, coming up next, uh, something that President Trump has uh, begun promoting and enacting, we're going to discuss here on The Coming Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to the common good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on again a beautiful fall day. Ian, I think these are the days where uh, weather-wise we're going to just long for when we What do we? What do you think? A month, two months away from our first snowstorm. What do we think?
1: When's the first oh, time
0: we're going to see the white stuff?
1: I yeah. I don't think I don't think we're two months away. No way. I my spirit was Halloween last year. Yeah. If if 2020 has been any indication. Of the kinds of things we should expect. Uh, my guess is five inches by tomorrow. That's that's how I see that playing out. And again, somebody listening is like, I love snow. That's great for you great. over over there. I don't even. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, oh, you. Just, if you could just keep your snow on whatever whatever neighborhood you live in. I That's the thing. I don't hate snow. I just don't want it in September, October, right. or even November. If I'm, if I'm being totally honest, once December hits, let's bring it on.
0: I mean, I don't hate snow, but today being like 70, 75 and this kind of, oh, this is the best. This is kind of where you're like, oh, I could, I could use this temperature for a long time. And then, like you said, just when we get used to it, the snow will come back. So Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we'll depress you all a little bit more. Plus with COVID now, you just don't, again, I'm sure we're going to talk about this sometime in the future, but when it snows and when it gets cold, like, what are we all going to do? Yeah, <laughs> like, gosh, no idea. No, I'm still going to eat outside. Just bundle up, be like, let's go, kids. <laughs> still going to eat outside,
1: just as a matter of principle.
0: It's so true. So we're going to talk about something uh, that uh, President Trump announced the other day. But first, I want to tell you about something going on here at the station. Uh, there are only five days left to enter to win a trip for two on the Bible Prophecy Tour of Israel with Pathway to Victory and Doctor Robert Jeffers next March. On this unforgettable trip, you'll visit the Sea of Galilee, the Mount of Beatitudes, the Garden of Gethsemane, and many other biblical sites. It's an amazing opportunity to see the places Jesus taught and performed miracles. So enter today at 1160hope.com, keyword Israel. That's 1160hope.com, keyword Israel. All right, so here's the story. And then we have two other articles that we won't read from necessarily that take totally different tacks on this. Okay, uh, love to know your thing. Uh, this one I pulled up from WGN the other day. It says, President Trump announces, quote, 1776 commission to promote patriotic education. President Trump announced last week that he will sign an executive order to promote patriotic education in the United States. He said, I will soon sign an executive order establishing a national commission to promote patriotic education. It's called the 1776 commission. Uh, He made the comments while speaking at the National Archives. He went on to say, it will encourage our educators to teach our children about the miracle of American history and make plans to honor the 250th anniversary of our founding. It's not yet clear how the commission will function. That's a great line. It's not yet clear how the the commission will function.
2: Uh,
0: At the press conference in early September, Trump, who has called for patriotic education in the past, blamed recent violent protests on, quote, left-wing indoctrination in schools. He said many young Americans have been fed lies about America being a wicked nation plagued uh, by racism. According to a report from Politico, Trump urged that children should be taught American America is a country worth defending and protecting. He said the only path to unity is to rebuild a shared national identity focused on common American values and virtues, of which we have plenty. This includes restoring patriotic education in our nation's schools Where they are trying to change everything we have learned. He says, part of the tenant, as part of the plan, two of the education tenants include teach American exceptionalism and provide school choice to every child in America. So the National Review, which leans very right, I'll just read you their headline. Okay. President Trump's 1776 Commission on Patriotic Education is an overdue effort. The Washington Post saw it a little differently when the Washington (laughs) Post said, Trump joins dictators and demagogues in touting patriotic education. (laughs) So a lot of different ways to go with this, Ian. And and I see value in this and I see danger in this. And I I know how I'd like to see this go. Uh, But when you read, I'm sure you heard this before, but when you read to hear this article read about patriotic education and the 1776 commission, uh, where do you land on this? Good idea, bad idea, dangerous idea. What do you think about this?
1: Man, you are just baiting me today, aren't you? this feels I'll go like... any
0: direction you would like
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, a couple of thoughts. I actually thinking back to our interview with Brian Zahn, who I thought did a, a a great job articulating that patriotism isn't a bad thing. it's not a it's not a bad word. I, I do feel like that that's been unfortunate that that word in some circles has so clearly come to mean something evil, something awful, you know, he talks a lot about, you know, in different language, like when Keller talks about disordered loves, like when our patriotism, when our love for country or flag is, you know, above the love of Jesus or cross, that, that, that's problematic, obviously. Um, uh, a couple of things from that first article kind of stand out to me. It feels like, I don't know, it's tricky for me to even read things like The Only Path to Unity, dot, dot, dot. I'm like, Oh, are we doing a lot to unify right now? <laughs> like it feels like both both sides have been doing uh their fair amount of uh division. The other thing that stands out to me the line you read Trump argued that children should be taught America is a country worth defending and protecting. I often see simply those two words put together. I would add scrutinizing like that's part of what zahn was getting at like you. Simp like blind defending and protecting this blind allegiance without the capacity to actually say, Yeah, but this part isn't great, or this part we've kind of glossed over, this part isn't doesn't mean that you hate the country. In fact, you could argue in many other arenas that's that's an indication of love. You're like wanting to point out, like, no, we could be better than that. Like, we don't have to keep glossing over that or perpetuating this. So, this idea that like patriotism is only defending and protecting. I I think that's part of what I find a little tricky. It should also say, hey, here's here's some of what what's really dark in our history. I think that by my definition, which doesn't mean anything, is just <laughs> as patriotic as anything. So, yeah. uh I don't know, like some people that are commenting on our Facebook page, you know, one person said um Since it's a direct response to the 19 uh, to the 1619 project, you can add a dash of racism to the indoctrination. So, like, clearly people are, you know, Kenneth Johnson said, ah, Germany in the 1930s. But then uh, Brad said, I 100% agree with this. It's time for us to stop rewriting the story of America, where I I think the I think a lot of people probably have a disagreement about what is written and what is rewritten. You know, that kind of is. Yeah. Crux of the disagreement, I think. So I don't, I don't know. How, how does all this strike you?
0: So I feel like we need like a sound effect for where I'm going to say something that I admit is really naive uh, okay. and really right. Pollyanna. Uh, I would like the history that my children learn to be accurate and just true. And and like uh, so I don't know that this one isn't or the 1619 commission, but but, but I would like us. I want them to have. I want my kids to be patriotic. I want them to know the history of our country. I want them to be proud of our country. I also want them to know the history of our country. Uh, I get it. What's the old saying that the uh, to the victors write the history books or whatever else it says? Um, But but I would like to think that we could teach a history to our kids uh, on either side that is accurate. Uh, I understand why that's difficult because who writes the history? Who this? I get it, but I wish. Uh, that were the case. I think you bring up a really important point as well. And you've said it a couple of times that uh, to to be patriotic and to love your country or to uh, whatever, that that's a good thing. But part of being patriotic, being truly patriotic is wanting the best for our country and therefore being willing to uh, point out where it hasn't lived up to its ideals and point out things we need to be working on. Uh, So often, patriotism has to be uh, is painted like well, then you can never question anything, and I think that's that's not that's not patriotic. Mm. Uh, that's not America, and so I do I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think to be a true patriot is to be one who will look critically at who we are as a nation and say, "Here's what we do great, but here's what we could do better."
1: Yeah, uh, and, right. and
0: try to live up to those ideals. And you know, anytime these come from politicians, I also think there's not even just a hidden agenda, just an agenda. Uh, And so I certainly think that's the case here. But we would love to know what you got to say. As Ian said, it's already up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Let us know uh, what you think. Well, coming up next from the Gospel Coalition, if it's the Gospel Coalition, it must be a list. Eight signs your Christianity is too comfortable. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. am 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Over at the uh, the Gospel Coalition, Ian, we we use articles from the Gospel Coalition often. And for one reason is they tend to write good stuff, provocative stuff. A second reason, as you like to point out, is because I love a good list. Makes for a good discussion. And for some reason, the Gospel Coalition has said we are going to be the place for lists. And uh, that is the case here. Uh, this is actually an article that we just saw as a couple years old, but I think it still really holds up uh, written by Brett McCracken. He writes eight signs. Your Christianity is too comfortable. And we've talked often about this, but especially here in the West, uh, it can be easy to have that comfortable religion. And so he's going to talk about eight signs. Let me read to you uh, his introduction. So he says in many parts of the world today, it can be easy to live a comfortable life as a Christian. Certainly where I live, that being Brett, uh, he says in Orange County, California, This is the case, but is that a good thing? I'd like to suggest that the Christian faith is inherently uncomfortable. To be a disciple of Jesus is to deny oneself, to take up a cross, to be subject to persecution, to give up the creature comforts of home, to forsake the priority of family, to be willing to give up all material possessions, to be crucified with Christ, and this is just the beginning. C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. But comfort seeking is our default mode in our consumerist society, so we often find ourselves in, quote, comfortable Christianity without even knowing it. What are some indicators that our Christianity has become too cozy, more like a pleasant bottle of port, like C.S. Lewis said, than the uncomfortable sharpening faith the New Testament envisions? He says, here are eight signs. And I think this is really important, man. Because this is really easy to have uh, have w- what he's going to term a comfortable faith uh, out here in the West. So why don't you start us off with our list here?
1: Why don't I? It's interesting. We were actually just talking about this a couple of weeks ago in our series, Love Where You Live, where we talked about uh, our obsession with comfort and how that kind of seeps in. So this is, this is super timely, even though it's an older article. Uh, number one. There's absolutely no friction between your Christianity and your partisan politics. Oh, he's coming out swinging. Okay. (laughs) I'm
0: in swinging. (laughs) Uh, If
1: you're all in with one political party and never feel any tension whatsoever with your Christian faith, it probably means your faith is too comfortable. Whether you're a lifelong Democrat or a diehard Republican, a robust Christian faith should create dissonance with politics at various points. A faith that aligns perfectly with one political party is suspiciously convenient and lacks Mm. prophetic witness.
0: Jumping into the deep end right away. Number two, there are no paradoxes, tensions, or unresolved tension uh, questions. If you never ponder or wrestle with the mind boggling tenets of Christianity, like the Trinity, the incarnation, God's sovereignty, the Holy spirit's presence to just name a few, your faith is probably too comfortable. A healthy, uncomfortable faith constantly rocks you, prods you and blows your mind. It's a faith that leaves you restless to want to know more, not satisfied, You've grasped all that there is to grasp about God. That's a really good one.
1: Yeah, no kidding, man. I Do we want to keep reading these?
0: <laughs> yeah, to
1: be challenged over and over again. <laughs>
0: oh, but You Number and I three. do this
1: perfectly. Don't worry. This is for. Oh, yeah, that is a lie from the pit <laughs> of hell. Number three, uh, your friends and coworkers are surprised to learn you're a church going Christian. Yikes. I mean. It's different with our coworkers because we're pastors, but uh, I get it. A sure sign your faith is too comfortable as if nothing in your life sets you apart as a Jesus follower to the point that even those who know you well can't tell you're a Christian. A comfortable Christian is one who easily blends in looking and talking and acting just like his or her lost neighbors. I would add maybe a caveat, like just because everyone knows isn't always necessarily a good sign either. So some nuance to that one. But yeah, point, point well taken.
0: Number four, you never think about or even remember the Sunday sermon on Monday. Gosh, I preach it. I hardly remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If Sunday sermons at your church are so forgettable or you're so disengaged that you rarely recall them after you leave church, your Christianity is probably too comfortable. hmm. This is written like uh, Jeff Foxworthy, right? (laughs) Yeah. gosh. Biblical preaching shouldn't leave us apathetic or unchallenged. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart.
1: Oh my goodness gracious. Why are we doing this? Number five, no one at your church ever annoys you. If you go to church with people who are always easy to talk to, always fun to be around and always closely aligned with your opinions, tastes and preferences, Christianity is too comfortable. This does feel like Foxworthy. (laughs) One of the glorious things about the gospel is that it creates a new community out of desperate types of people in uh, many cases wouldn't otherwise choose to spend time together. That an that's an interesting one, but a convicting one for sure.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's like we're beating it's like we're beating ourselves with this one here. <laughs> Number 6. This is a, a list of eight signs your Christianity is too comfortable. Number 6, you never feel challenged, only affirmed. If your Christian faith never confronts your idols and challenges your sinful habits, but only ever affirms you as you are, this is a sure sign of a too comfortable faith. Healthy faith doesn't just celebrate you as you are. But relentlessly molds and refines you into the likeness of Christ, which is a beautiful but necessarily uncomfortable. Process, and These are these are good. Goodness.
1: I think we're all out of time. Right, I don't have to keep going. <laughs> uh, number seven: You've never had to have a truth and love conversation with a fellow Christian. Oh. It's always more comfortable to just quote live and let live when there's an uh, an offense or a sin that needs to be called out. It's more comfortable to just shrug when we see others in our community making unhealthy decisions. But this isn't true Christian love. Love isn't opposed to truth, and if your faith doesn't include the capacity to speak hard truths in love. It's too comfortable. Interesting. Mm.
0: Number eight. Uh, and then I'm be prepared while I read this last one. And I'm going to ask you if you had to add a number nine, what, what might be one that you would add? How's that? Oh, All right. Number eight. No one in your church could comment on any area of growth they've seen in you. <laughs> <Ouch>. <laughs> yeah, <yikes. laughs> to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is to believe in change, <laughs> though not always linear. The Christian life should be marked by growth, forward momentum and change for the better. If you're a Christian who's grown so little that no one in your church could identify any area of improvement, your faith is too comfortable. All right. That's like, that's quite a list from Brett McCracken. It's actually from his book from 2017, uncomfortable, the awkward and essential challenge of Christian community. Uh, can you think of any that you might add? Cause this isn't the exhaustive list. So any that you'd add there?
1: Uh, yeah, there's probably a few that I are maybe sort of couched within that, but like, a Christianity that never asks anything of you, you know, like if it's all about oh, we want you to enjoy the experience as much as possible, which is obviously, you know, you and I spend a lot of time actually thinking about that. But one that doesn't actually ask of you to like she just said, you know, take up your cross and follow him, which will sometimes look like a denying of yourself. It isn't just about like, hey, we want to make sure that the temperature is just right and the screens are just right and that everything's entertaining and engaging. And again, those aren't bad motives. But yeah, Christianity that doesn't cost something one. at some point. I think that's, you know, part of a market discipleship is like a, a continuing, you know, emptying of myself for the sake of the gospel. I don't, do you have any? I do.
0: Uh, so the first thought that came to mind uh, was seeing how much Jesus talks about uh, a transformation that we would do with our money. I, I think there's one in here about money, but I would also go with, and this is close to one he said before, uh, but if you never, if you never have any doubts, if you never have any, uh, just honest struggles. I mm. think the more we grow in our faith, the more that we recognize that I don't know everything and I've got doubts and I've got struggles and I've got not just questions, but but real wrestling. If we're not wrestling, then I think we've probably signed on for a comfortable version of Christianity that just says, eh, I'm fine. Mm. Uh, just kind of check these boxes and go. So Uh, That's a good list, though. I wonder what you'd add to them out there. We've got this up on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Let us know if there's any that you would add to the list. Well, coming up next, we're going to close the show uh, with an article from NBC News uh, about COVID-19 and and what it does uh, to our spiritual lives. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good Uh, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us here today. Uh, We've had a lot of great discussions today. I want to end the show this way. And part of why I found this article interesting is because where I found this article. This is at NBC News. So Mm. uh, the article, the headline, at least, you would think you'd be getting at the Gospel Coalition or, uh, you know, Religion News or Christianity Today. But the, the headline to the article is this. The COVID-19 pandemic tests everyone's spiritual well-being, atheists and believers alike. And then it says, even those who don't pray to a higher power still usually have some belief in how the world works that gives them a sense of safety and security. So this is at NBC News, an opinion piece at NBC News. uh, Why don't you dive us into this a little bit more?
1: Can I dive you into it?
0: Why don't you dive yourself into this a little deeper, and we will dive with you. <laughs> that sounds more like a
1: threat. Like, why not you why don't you dive yourself into this, jerk? That's, <laughs> I'm going to try that really in real funny. life and see if it works. Uh, all right, so September 21st, 2020. By uh, Eric Hall, physical suffering is often only part of the difficulty that a person faces during a traumatic event or life-threatening illness. There can also be emotional and mental anguish and spiritual distress or struggle. The last arises when a person's basic belief system is shaken and it can take place whether or not they are religious. Interesting. This means that during a major crisis such as the COVID-19 pandemic, we need to make sure that everyone is getting spiritual care. People in spiritual distress often no longer believe the world is a safe place. They might lose hope and have a difficult time finding meaning and purpose in what's happening to them. For a religious person, that often takes the form of losing faith in a loving and merciful God after witnessing a tragic event. But even those who don't pray to a higher power still usually have some belief in how the world works that gives them a sense of safety and security. Serious illness and tragic events can challenge these anchors and throw a person into turmoil. Uh goes on to say spiritual struggle is a key indicator of negative medical outcomes. A two-year-old study by the Duke University Medical Center found that religious struggle, which refers to experiences of tension, strain, and conflict about spiritual matters within oneself, with others, or with God, is a predictor of mortality in medically ill elderly patients. Interesting. The study noted that, quote, although the magnitude of the – oh, boy. My whole screen just went blank.
0: (laughs) The study noted that although the magnitude (laughs) of the effects associated with religious struggle was relatively small, from 6% to 10% increased risk of mortality, certain types of struggle had much higher correlations with death. For churchgoers, feeling, quote, alienated from or unloved by God, for instance, was linked with a 19% to 28% increase in a risk of dying during the course of the study. That's crazy. And Ian here, we'll stop there. Uh, by the way, did your computer come back or just still blank? Still blank?
1: Oh yeah, we're back. We're back. Okay. Just, it just happened in the middle of my reading for some reason.
0: It happens all the time like that. If people only knew. <laughs> oh my god, that happens. I wonder what you think now. Obviously, we have people who are not Christ followers who listen to our show, but by and large, most people who listen uh, are on some. Uh, you know, they've been believers for a long time, a short amount of time, uh, and so I, I do want to dive into it as we close out the show from that angle. Uh, pastorally, what would you say to the people out there, Ian, who are uh, through COVID-19 especially and all of this stuff are just um, that their faith is just shaken? They don't know. Uh, is there a God? Does God love us? I don't know how to how to I, I'm just doubting. I have these questions and I guess the best way I could put it is their faith is shaken by the whole pandemic and other things. How would you how would you counsel somebody who might be in your church who would ask you that?
1: I mean, a, a couple of things come to mind. First, if you're at a place where you feel like your faith is shaken, you're in very good company. Like Great. the biblical story is full of people, people that maybe on the surface you wouldn't think of as ones with like, quote, shakable faith. There's there's almost not a book in there without some depiction no. or story or mention of someone whose faith is shaken. So, yeah, first and foremost, this idea that like the most mature Christian is the like stoic, never let him see a sweat, never has a doubt, never has a question. that isn't a thing that doesn't exist. The other thing that I think is really important that comes to mind for me that I've been pondering a lot more lately is how often certain versions of Christianity do not set us up well to navigate Mm. doubt or trauma or fear Mm. for a lot of different reasons. One of them is I, and it feels like in the West in particular, we have struggled to articulate and equip people in the course of discipleship to really think about your interior life. So much of Christianity in the West is about And they're good things. They're like, we're really action oriented. We're going to go plant churches, go on mission trips, serve in ministries, all really, really good things. But there's no, like the article uses the word anchoring. There's no anchoring. We don't, we don't know what a rule of life is or daily office. And we don't have this like interior uh, strength because we've not actually, like, think about how little we talk about silence. The idea of like simply being silent with God, even in our prayers, we're the ones doing most of the talking or it's a devotional study, but it involves me like reading and then answering some questions. And then I go about my day. Uh, I think one of the things that, that trauma can sometimes kind of spur out of us is the, is the recognition. they like, Whoa, this is, I'm on way shakier territory than I realized. The heartbreaking thing is when people just walk away altogether, like, well, guess this Christianity yeah. thing isn't for me because I'm having a tough time. <laughs> Jesus talks about it. You're gonna face trials. You're gonna you're gonna face hardships. I think one of the things you need to get a lot better at in the American church in particular is helping equip people to understand discipleship as much more robust than simply like an intellectual ascent about things that have to do with God and much more about I man, how do I how do I integrate? What does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus mm-hmm. on Tuesday at eleven thirty AM? You know what I mean? Like Those are questions that people a lot of times don't have any categories for. So when the bottom drops out, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. This was not this. I wasn't told any of this would happen in a a sermon in my life. You know, like I was not prepared for any of this. We start to feel like maybe God has gypped us. And I think, you know, we got it. We got to get after that.
0: Yeah. And it goes on later to say, of course, it's also worth remembering that times of crisis can strengthen one's spiritual life, which is the backwards nature of it. uh, That God says he's near to the brokenhearted. And we Mm -hmm. see that over and over. I mean. Like you mentioned, David, who is, you know, he slayed Goliath. And he also wrote the book of Psalms going, many of the Psalms, I should say, going, where are you, God? What are you doing? Right. And uh, just crying out and struggling. Uh, and we see it over and over again. But I, I would kind of close it out this way by saying, uh, if, it's, if we're going to get through difficult times and our faith is going to come out stronger on the other end of stuff, then the things you mentioned there are so important, uh, silence and these other things. Uh, the other non-negotiable there's community right when you mm-hmm. go at it alone in the midst of struggle uh, when you try to go at it alone that's I, I just don't think that's gonna end well right um, but when you've got people praying for you uh, encouraging you pointing you to scripture uh, pointing you to God you know pointing you to the hope that we have in Jesus uh, you that's that's the purpose of community that you and I talk so often about and then hopefully even the show you uh, plays a small part in for some people. Uh, and I thought it was important for us to end that way because there's probably people out there right now. We've been at this COVID thing for six months. And in some ways you're, you're asking like, what's when, how's this ever going to end? You know? And so, uh, there, there, I'm sure people not just struggling like, oh, this is annoying, but like where you're the very foundation of your faith is rocked right now and shaking. Mm. And as Ian said, know that you're in good company, uh, cling to your community, uh, Run to God in prayer and I don't run away, and that you know there's hope there. It doesn't, your your faith doesn't have to go by the wayside, but um, that does happen in these times, and so take it very seriously. So, I thought that was an important way to end, uh, just because I'm sure there's people out there feeling that way right now. Well, we talked about a lot today. If you missed any of it, we'd encourage you to go to our Facebook page or uh, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast, just go ahead and subscribe rate and review we'll be with you tomorrow from four until six for ian simpkins my name is brian Fromm. you've been listening to the common good you're on am 1160 hope for your life